Look, there's that great line in Fight Club, which I talk about in my book, Happy People Are Annoying. I, uh, I talk about in the book, like Brad Pitt says to Ed Norton, if our fathers are our model for God and our fathers leave us, what does that say about God? And it took me a long time to see that I was carrying that sort of disposition throughout so much of my life. And especially in relationships where I would start dating someone and a natural conflict would arise because that's just what happens in relationships. And instead of me walking through it, I would run for the hills because I figured it was a harbinger of more bad to come. And I also was like, listen, my dad left me. So whatever you think you can do to me, any power you have over me, I'll be just fine. In fact, I'll be so fine. Let me show you by leaving first. And of course, that got me good and alone. (laughs) So I was forced to face those sort of negative patterns. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Josh Peck. Josh has established himself as one of Hollywood's rising talents, making the seamless transition between child actor to leading man. Josh is best known for his role on the Nickelodeon phenomenon Drake and Josh, for which he received a Kids' Choice nomination. The series premiere was watched by 3.2 million viewers, Nickelodeon's highest rated series premiere in nearly 10 years. Josh is also 14 years sober and has such an amazing and inspiring story, which I think y'all are going to get a lot out of. Josh is also the author of the memoir, Happy People Are Annoying, which is the occasion for today's chat. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Josh Peck to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Josh Peck, welcome to the pod. Oh man, what an honor. So happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, we we were just chatting away before and we didn't realize we weren't live and we were like, you know, we might as well just hit the record button because our conversation was going in a place that I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of. And I think a good starting place is essentially like where we left off. So you just celebrated 14 years in recovery, which I think is amazing. It's very inspiring. But you asked me this question and I want to punt it back to you. Like how fortunate, how blessed do you feel that you aren't in the depths of your addiction now with the increase of, of fentanyl and it now being intermixed in all these different types of drugs and the increased cost of opiates and everything that's gone along with that. I feel incredibly lucky and, and it's incredibly scary to be a parent during this time. And obviously sort of drugs of that nature, like when you've really leveled up out of mushrooms and marijuana and we're talking about like real deal, proper you know, felony type drugs. Um, there was always sort of this, you were, you were playing with fire, but now you like truly could have every intention of just doing a small amount that would normally be like suitable to your body and literally play yourself. And it's all done in an instant. And we've lost so many, so many incredible performers and famous people and actors to it, which is heartbreaking in and of its own, but also just like family members and just, you know, regular people and parents have lost kids and kids have lost parents. And so it's really wild. And I I think about my son 
And I wonder, like, as I would have the normal conversation with him when he's of an appropriate age of like safe sex and wearing a condom and whatnot, like, but, you know, I hope that, you know, when you do eventually do this, you're doing it with someone you love and it's, it's under the right circumstances and whatnot. Similarly with drugs, like, do I give my kid Narcan when he's 15 and 16? And how do I say like, this is in no way permission for you to do any of this. But if God forbid it happens, I want you to be equipped with something that could intervene if God forbid a friend of yours or yourself, like something occurred, you know, it's it's a wild world. Absolutely. And I feel the same way. I mean, I'm really thankful that I'm not in the midst of my addiction now because my level of trust for other people and what they were selling me was fairly high. Like I would just take anything. You know, I remember there was a time where a guy I was getting my opiates from told me like, hey, I got a batch. I think most of them are fake, but there might be a couple of real ones in here. And back then, these were like the OC Oxycontin pills where you had to lick off the time release and snort it. The green ones? Yeah, the 80s. Oh, it's good times. Hunter Green. Yeah. So I licked the time release off every single pill to see if there would be a real one. And thankfully for me then, there was a real one. But also thankfully for me, they weren't laced with fentanyl, which I fast forward now. And the reason I bring that up, like I think there's a good chance that I would have done that again today if I was in the midst of my addiction. And there it could be likely that the fentanyl was in there. And what I've heard from people now is like back then people were dying because they literally did too much of a drug. They literally overdosed off of whatever drug they were doing. And now I think they're being poisoned, right? Like kind of like you said, like people are doing a little bit and it's just a bad batch. It's something that's laced with fentanyl and they're, they're dying when they might not even be a full on drug addict. It's their second, third, fourth time maybe using that drug. So I get asked a lot like advice to parents and I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. And I think about like if and when I do have kids, like how I will navigate that. And I'm sure there's a lot of parents that are listening to this that maybe they have kids that are younger. Maybe they have kids that have gone through this. Like what's your approach going to be? Like what have you put into like words with your wife or have you thought in depth about, okay, like what's going to happen? Like if and when this does occur. I think the one thing that's become abundantly clear, even just being a father for three years, is that you have to model what you want your kids to be. And I am a son of a single mom. My mom is this incredible Jewish New Yorker who has literally had to lift herself up by her bootstraps her whole life and, you know, could never sort of had to carve her place in life always. And thus, she's passionate. And I've inherited that from her. And, you know, very early on, my wife made it clear to me, like, we are never to argue in front of our child. (laughs) And it's not weak. Like, you don't have to man up on your three-year-old. You know, like, if your child acts out or just is naturally acting like a kid, which so many people find acceptable, like, how dare you act your age? It's like, you can actually talk to him. Like you can teach him, you can even put him in a timeout, but you don't have to like blow up on him the way that you saw other parents or even, you know, I had a single mom and she had to act as both parents sometimes. So, you know, sometimes she'd talk to me like I cut her off in traffic, but (laughs) it was, you know, it was necessary to make sure that I understood the gravity. But 
my son doesn't require that. You know, he has two parents. So I try to model for him in myself the way I want him to be. And I also like, he doesn't understand that I'm sober. And I don't know if that's something that I'll, obviously he'll become hip to it quickly because I'm the only one at a family event maybe who's not having a margarita. But, you know, I think as he's ready to accept that stuff, I'll allow him into that side of of who I am and just do my best to adapt to what his needs are and the, the kind of kid he presents himself to be. Yeah. I mean, I think modeling as I've learned just from talking to people on the podcast and just in my own observations is so important for all things that you want to teach your kids. Because like what I think happens is if a parent is constantly telling their kids not to do something yet, they are doing it themselves. There's this like level of cognitive dissonance and disconnect between what the kid is hearing and what the, the kid is seeing, right? They're like, oh, if drinking that much alcohol is, is so bad, like, why are you doing it? Or if eating that food is, is so unhealthy, then, then why are you doing it? I want to talk about parenting. And, and this is a good segue into our, like, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is, like, you mentioned, like, growing up with a single mom, you didn't have a father figure in your life. And I can imagine that, there was this sense of fear going through your head when you found out you were going to be a, a dad, let alone a dad of a, of a, of a son. So if you could walk the audience, like through what was going through your mind when you found that out, and then also maybe elaborate on like, how did your lack of relationship with your dad inspire you to become the dad you are now and the dad you will be in the future? Well, I think that, you know, my father died when I was 26 and I'd never met him. And so I'm never going to get an amends from him. And yet having my son and being there for him, being for him what I wish my dad had been for me, in a weird way was an amends to myself. And sometimes by simply not passing the, the trauma you experience to the next generation is sort of you karmically balancing the scales. My wife and I didn't find out what we were having, we wanted it to be a surprise while she was pregnant. And I assumed coming from a single mother and having done so much musical theater, I'm like, I'm having a girl. There's no way I've got the requisite testosterone to produce uh, a boy. And and then when my son was born, I, I said, of course, right? Because I had to sort of, this was like my cosmic comeuppance. I had to fix the bad feedback wheel. And it allowed for me to have some empathy for my dad because he had a wife and he had kids and a whole other family. And when I saw how incredible it was, just even the most mundane of tasks of, you know, changing my son in the middle of the night or walking him up and down like Wilshire Boulevard, trying to let my wife like sleep for two hours. I realized that he missed all that. And I know how much I would have felt at a loss had I missed that with my son. So look, there's a great line in Fight Club, which I talk about in my book, Happy People Are Annoying. I, uh, I talk about in the book, like Brad Pitt says to Ed Norton, if our fathers are our model for God and our fathers leave us, what does that say about God? And it took me a long time to see that I was carrying that sort of disposition throughout so much of my life. And especially in relationships where I would start dating someone and a natural conflict would arise because that's just what happens in relationships. And instead of me walking through it, I would run for the hills because I figured it was a harbinger of more bad to come. And I also was like, listen, my dad left me. 
So whatever you think you can do to me, any power you have over me, I'll be just fine. In fact, I'll be so fine, let me show you by leaving first. And of course, that got me good and alone. (laughs) So I was forced to face those sort of negative patterns. If you'd like a shortcut to better sleep, more energy, and a calmer, more stable mood, then you should make sure you're supplementing with magnesium daily. Let me tell you why. About 75% of people are magnesium deficient. This deficiency can lead to higher levels of anxiety, irritability, trouble sleeping, and low energy. It can even contribute to foot and leg cramps while you sleep. The good news is that you can experience a number of positive health benefits from just getting enough magnesium, including better sleep, more energy, less irritability, and even a calmer mood. But to experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium. The truth is, most magnesium supplements you'll find in health stores use only the two cheapest synthetic forms, and this is why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Their organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement includes seven unique forms of magnesium that can help reduce stress and improve sleep. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug. It's M-A-G breakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Again, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Yeah, we definitely carry on like the past patterns, traumas and like relationship, like tactics and tools from like the people that we either modeled it for us or how we grew up and past past traumas and in our in our childhood and stuff like that. But I think there's a lot of layers of your story that I think a lot of people are going to relate to, whether it was the weight loss journey, whether it was the addiction, getting in and out of that, whether it was finally like doing the work to unlearn some of these unhealthy patterns. So let's kind of start from the beginning where you are finally at a point where you're just sick of being so overweight and unhappy with your physical health that you decided to finally start eating better and work out. So what was going on in your head at that time? I don't want people to think, because in the book, I am hard on myself and I make fun of myself a lot especially with the weight. And I don't want people to think I'm speaking hyperbolically. I just want to be very clear about what was going on in my mind at that time. And I think now with body positivity and sort of 
the way in which we've embraced all different body types. I think it's a beautiful thing. It just didn't exist when I was overweight. And I think weight can manifest itself in two ways, and, and both of which are correlated with what's going on inside. And in one way, it can be someone who's perfectly content with their size and and their size represents a genetic inheritance. It represents a love of food and and variety and enjoying themselves. Or it can manifest and represent inner turmoil that's going on inside. And I was the latter. You know, I was eating to sort of numb these feelings that I didn't know how to deal with. I just wasn't equipped. So at 17, when I finally had sort of hit this bottom, which was I saw that food I come from a family of big people and I could just see that food was this like terrorizing force. And I had been self-limiting myself as far as parties and dating and sort of the natural teenage things because I just didn't feel comfortable. And I knew that if I didn't take sort of action now, I was never going to get those years back. So I always tell people if they're looking for any sort of advice from me or any inspiration as far as weight loss goes, I want to give them some hack. I want to, because I know how badly at that time I just wanted to be like, just tell me to do like Atkins and hang upside down for, you know, 15 minutes a day. And if that's the secret, I'll do it. <laughs> but the reality is that I always want to tell people, if you are at your bottom, if you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you are utterly at a loss because your way hasn't been working, well, the good news is you might be in a very good place to start. And that's the truth for me. Pain is my motivator. I never learned anything on a good day. And I had to be utterly without options to take the correct path. I really like how you, as a trainer and as a fitness professional, I like how you pointed that out, that there is no magic pill. There is no one size fits all approach. It's not as simple as doing a certain diet and, and hanging upside down, like you said. It's about these small simple steps and being consistent over time that add up to a bigger goal, bigger journey, a bigger achievement in the fitness space. So what did that initial thing look like for you? Like what kept you like going on this weight loss journey? Like what kept you inspired given that you had so much weight to lose and your mental health was already in a place where it was suffering? It's a great question because I, I would spend most of my, like, I think I was the first kid on keto at like 10 years old. Like, I literally would try these diets on a Monday and by Tuesday night, I would have lost five pounds and then completely ruined it and just started eating in an obsessive way till the next Monday. But this time I just had to accept the fact that like, I was not going to be perfect, but I, I would have to learn how to live to fight another day. And if I didn't have a perfect day of eating, well, then I'd have to wake up the next morning and try again. But if I had more, if I could just sort of gain more wins than losses, more days where I was eating consciously in a healthy way than the days where I wasn't, that just over time, it would start to work in my favor. And then it was exciting. I mean, I was losing weight. I think, I remember I started around June, I was 17 and it was June and I went to New York for the summer where I'm from and I would just walk the streets of New York because I literally had no baseline fitness, like could not do a push up, but I could walk and I would put my earbuds in and I would listen to music and think about what my life was gonna be and try to eat healthy. And over that summer, I lost like 40 pounds. So it was a great like, okay, I'm almost halfway there. And then of course it would take me another year to lose the next almost 70 pounds because 
it's usually how it goes when you're that heavy. Right. I like how you pointed out the fact that you were somebody that you got started in this in this diet culture very young and how that I'm sure influenced your ability for your ability to stick with anything like throughout your teenage years because of the fact that that's what you were taught. I know your mom was a yo-yo dieter, if I remember correctly, and, and she you, you kind of modeled her behavior a bit. But then you talked about like how you got through this weight loss journey, right? And you were, you were telling yourself that it, when I lose weight, I will feel this. Or when I, when I just lose the weight, I'll do that. And the problem became the weight loss came and those things didn't follow suit. So what was going through your head? What was going through your mind when you lost all the weight and you still weren't truly happy with who you are? Well, I so quickly substituted food for drugs and alcohol because I wasn't even that aware. I didn't know what food was truly offering me. I just figured it was like this impediment. It's annoying. And sort of the, maybe dangerous isn't the right word, but the duality of like the Instagram inspo life that we live with and take life by the horns and, you know, hustle, hustle culture. It's like, it all sounds good. and, And if that inspires you to have a little bit better workflow during the day, then God bless you. But I really thought like, no, I did it. Like I have the willpower. I am at the helm of the ship and I steered us through the storm. But I didn't realize that like I had this little Joe Pesci living inside my head who was like, okay, if you're going to take this one medicine away from me, then I'm going to need something else. And when I found drugs and alcohol or drugs specifically, they, they were just so much more efficacious and less calorie dense. So that led me on a four year vision quest to really brutally get brought down to my knees to where I I truly had to confront what was going on inside or risk not having a future. Yeah. And I obviously myself and so many people have, have been in that very same spot that you were in both making a decision to change your life and get rid of the, the drugs, the alcohol, whatever it was that was destroying your life and getting into recovery and moving forward in a way that, that betters yourself, betters your life, that sort of thing. Or, you will go down the other path in which you continue to self-destruct even more. But there's a lot of other people too that are listening to this that you talked about how there's a lot of, that you numbed your pain with food and then eventually you found comfort in drugs and alcohol. So what was going through your head? Like when you first got high, when you first felt that feeling, like how did you feel? I don't, I'm interested to hear your answer too. I, you know, I, I was finally at a party I was, you know, 18 years old and this is this is what I dreamed of. I wanted to be typical and I wanted to feel like I belonged. And suddenly I felt like I at least paid the price of admission. I was now 180 pounds and I was of the appropriate age to be at this party. And then someone took out, you know, this girl who who sort of had shown me some attention, busted out some cocaine and I was like, "Oh, that's from the movies." Like, what's this doing here? Like, I think I'd smoked a joint once, but I was like, wow, this is proper. This is very, uh, this is incredibly illegal. (laughs) And And she offered it to me and I said, no. And a few days later, I said, yes. And my only interest in doing it was I wanted to be typical and I wanted her to see. And I remember doing it and I felt no change. I imagined, I said, I imagined either God would come down and start petting my body, or perhaps I would, you know, feel like a rush to my head. And then I would like, just maybe die. Like I was like, you know, this is, this is real stuff. I I, got to feel something, but I felt nothing. 
I was just so pleased that I had joined the ranks of like a normal 18 year old or what I thought was normal. But of course, the end of the night resulted in me lying in bed. And I was thinking back at the night and I felt so confident. And I was at this party and I was just socializing and having a drink. And I just was like, wow, who is this guy? This is the guy I always wanted to be. And I realized, oh, this isn't Josh. This is Hi Josh. Like, and Hi Josh is great at parties. And I say in the book, like, that was the most corrosive thought that I'd ever basically ushered me into the next four years of my life, which was, if it's possible to feel this way, why would I ever want to feel any differently? And I spent the next four years loaded. Yeah, I definitely can relate. When I first got high off pot, I felt that same feeling that you alluded to of like being the guy that you always wanted to be. I didn't have anxiety. I didn't have fear. I felt that I didn't have to worry about my future. Like I, I didn't have to worry about my family dynamics because I grew up in a, in a divorced home. Like I didn't have to worry about any of that. And then I, I didn't like the taste of pot. I loved the numbing feeling that it gave me, the level of comfort that it brought me. And then that progressed into doing more pot, selling it, Coke. And then eventually, as we talked about before we recorded, like, opiates is what really crushed me and the same feeling that I initially had gotten when I started to smoke pot was the same feeling I got when I started to do oxycotton and the problem with oxy is it's way more addictive mentally and physically than pot and it's just you get addicted so much quicker too which was something I didn't realize would happen to me like I I knew that I wasn't putting kale in my system, but I had no idea how fast I would become addicted to these pills. It's interesting. And I'm sure, you know, being a trainer and and as adept as this, like, you know, it well, too, if you've ever had bronchitis or lung infection or an allergy infection, a lot of times the, the doctor will prescribe you prednisone or some sort of like oral steroid for a very brief amount of time. And It's incredible that within a day or two, by taking like a horse's dose of this exogenous sort of chemical that takes over for your body and and just gives you a massive amount of something, your body stops making it within like three days. It literally goes like, oh, well, I'm getting this from an outside source and it's so much better. So it's no sort of it's not hard to put together the fact that like, as soon as you're getting these massive waves of dopamine and serotonin from these outside drugs, your body just kind of goes, Oh, I guess I don't have to make it anymore. Right. Yeah. That that totally makes sense. I think for you, what's interesting to me that I want to ask you is you got famous, I would say at a very young age, right? Like you were on this massive TV show on Nickelodeon when you were young and then you got addicted to drugs when you were fairly young as well. So like looking back, which do you think was more addicting to you? Was it the fame or was it the drugs? I think, and it's, your assumption is totally right, but it is a misnomer. Drake and Josh was not a big show. When, you know, my first TV show that that certainly is now probably the thing that I'll always be most well known for, but we were a kid show on Nickelodeon and eight-year-olds watched us. And so it's a credit to the show in the way that it was, in my opinion, well done. And also it was so relatable because it was sort of like 
this um, unorthodox family, but a family nonetheless, that people have continued to come to it, you know, 15 years later. And Nickelodeon Kids Television doesn't have to pay residuals, so there's plenty of reruns. I would almost say it's way more popular now that when we were making it, it was like, it was cool. There was no social media, but I had a, other than this extraordinary job I got to do, I had a pretty normal adolescence as far as I would work till six and I'd go home and play hockey with my best friend Len and his mom would make microwave pizza and we'd watch the Kings. So, and I think especially at that young age, the silver lining of being so overweight was it was a self-governor to not allow my ego to get so terribly out of control because at every turn where I could have been like, wow, look how cool and impressive I am. There was always that thought in the back of my head going like, don't forget, like you don't fit in. Or like, yeah, you're funny, but you're the weird one. So in a weird way, that kind of saved me from becoming too impressed with myself. Yeah, I never I never thought of it like that. Like you make a really good point that like you did, you had this weight issue that kind of, I guess, humbled you in a way where your ego couldn't get too high because you felt so poorly about yourself in, in that context. That definitely makes sense. But I think as far as like your recovery story and, and the the healing you had to do from addiction, it, it seems to me there was a lot of mental and emotional weight that had to be lost, right? So what were some of the things that you had to work on internally to help heal from your childhood, to help heal from the, the addiction and, and everything to kind of become the person you are today? I think there was just facing patterns that I had in my life, just ways in which I was setting myself up to be uncomfortable, these extraordinary expectations I had of people and of myself. And much for the reason why the book is called Happy People Are Annoying is that throughout most of my life, I assumed that happiness was reserved for quarterbacks and people who in, whose families were rich or the Ivy League and attractive, hot people. Hot people are happy and that makes sense because they won the face lottery. But what I would come to realize was that my journey for happiness meant walking through every challenge. It meant redefining it for myself because I, I had figured throughout most of my life that a instruction manual was handed out at birth and I just wasn't privy to it of how to like navigate life without being too sensitive, too insecure, too, too overly critical, too analytical. Analysis is paralysis, my friend always says. And Instead, what I learned through therapy and facing my stuff and 12-step, which was allowing a good life to be the result of good living. You know, there's this great quote, which is, your character is your fate. And by doing the right thing over and over again, to the best of my ability in a little way every day, suddenly my life started to look like one of a good man. I started to have the life of a good man, despite the fact that I knew that my dirty little secret was, was like, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm the son of this single mom. Like there's so many, there were so many things standing in my way to impede me from that great life. But by facing these challenges, by walking through it, by having apostles and people I looked up to and taking their counsel and wisdom you know, I, I got overpaid with a really great life as soon as I stopped chasing one. Gosh, that's so well said, man. 
And, um, you know, thanks for, again, for, for opening up and sharing, getting so vulnerable on here and, and talking about some of these things that you had to work on and, and setbacks and, and things in your life that maybe you weren't proud of, but you are proud of now because you're now using them to help other people. You know, my relationship with my dad isn't, isn't the greatest. And one of the things that I found myself doing over the years is having to put together like these people in my life that are male role models to kind of help replace that void that was missing in my life. And it seems that you've kind of done that as well. So if you had to like pinpoint like one or two people that have been like really good, solid male role models in your life that not only have impacted you personally, but maybe how you want to be a father or how you want to be a husband, like who have they been? Who have they been? You know, I was lucky enough to my mom's credit at eight years old. She took me uh, in New York City to something called the Jewish Big Brothers Foundation. And it's, you know, just a subset of Big Brother, Big Sisters. And I've had a big brother named Dan for the last, you know, 27 years. He was the best man at my wedding. We're sort of a rarity of the Big Brother Foundation. Like, I think it tends to last a couple of years and then people sort of part ways. But Dan incredible force in my life and it's the most like I'll choke up talking about it because it's one thing to give money not hating on money money's awesome Elon Musk just gave six billion to end world hunger shout out Elon Musk but to give your time in a charitable way I think is 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 of the highest value and to know that Dan was like there for me every other Sunday throughout my whole adolescence and then has just been this figure in my life. And he's just a, a guy of deep moral fortitude. Like he's just like, he does the right thing even when no one's watching. And I turn to him for so many things in my life, be it professional or my family, because I really respect his family. And he's, you know, sort of never steered me wrong. So I think I think he's been a great father figure. And then in a weird way, I think my father-in-law, like I feel like the universe gave me the father figure that I needed through my wife's dad, who's just this natural alpha. And I always feel like alphas get a bad name. It used to be like cute to make fun of alpha males. To me, a true alpha is a natural leader who leads quietly and looks out for the path. You know, that to me is like, they don't have bravado. They don't need to put on any airs about them. And they tend to be some of the most generous because they're so secure in, in, in themselves. And, and that's my father-in-law, you know? And I, I remember specifically, you know, he was, a, as I said, he was a quarterback in the NFL, which is a natural leadership position. And last year I was starring in this Disney plus show called Turner and Hooch. And it was the first time I was ever like the number one on the call sheet and basically leading the show with like a proper budget and real stakes. So I asked for his advice. I said, how can I be a good leader? Because when you're the number one on the call sheet, you are sort of a leader. And he said, the losses are yours. The wins are everyone's. And basically just like if an issue arises, like it's your issue, right? Somebody else messes up, take it on as your own, you know? And, and also like, spread the love when things go well. And I thought that was just such a great sort of piece of advice and, and helped me a lot. Man, thanks for thanks for sharing that. And I know it's gotta be tough sometimes to to get real and, and open up about things that had like such a big impact in your life, like like Dan and then like your 
like your father-in-law and it, I think sometimes it's hard to open up because like there's this sense of, of shame and around like, man, like why do I have to have these people in my life to replace my father figure? Like why couldn't he have been there in the way that others were there? But you've done such a good job, it seems, in your own healing and your recovery to to forgive him, to have empathy, and then to accept that that was just part of the path. Like you said, like you felt like your wife's father was in your life for for the reason that he's in there today. That's very much in writing this book because like I had to – this took me a really long time. Like it's literally something I've only – sort of done work on over the last year or two, which was, I can't erase my origin story. You know, I wanted to omit parts of my history, but my awkward teenage years are in reruns and people have watched me grow up. And if I can use these struggles, these at times public struggles and me walking through it to hopefully offer a little perspective for someone reading the book and going through something similar, then it's like, that's the way that these things are, are lifted from us, like helping the next person and giving them some perspective. And like you and I could talk about a language of the heart because you know, we, we're the language of the heart because we immediately qualify to each other like, oh, I, I, I know where you've been. Like I, I literally like like we're sober the same amount of time. Like, and, you know, we've contended with weight and stuff. So suddenly I'm going to be so much more inclined to listen to Doug than I am to 90% of people. Cause I'm like, Doug gets it. Like the world may be right. well-intentioned, but they walk this walk. And so I think that's so compelling when someone's on the same rock wall as you, but maybe they're 20 feet up and they go like, use hold two and four. Cause they feel more secure than one and three. Like that's good advice to me. For sure. Yeah. And I, I, I so I, I really agree with what you said that you can only like, relate to somebody as deep as the place that you've gone that's similar to where they are, right? And um, I think we live in a time where we, so many people see highlight reels, they see like the finished product on things like social media, and they don't realize that everybody has this origin story, which is why I wanted to really dive a little deeper into yours. But I think the people that, that tend to thrive in life are the ones that do what you said in that they accept like that their origin story was just part of where they're supposed to go. It's not the end all be all. And so for you, I know like there's been many things you've used throughout the years to cope with life, whether it be making people laugh, whether it be food, whether it be drugs and alcohol, like what do, what do you do now? Because I'm sure obviously you have a three-year-old kid, you're, you know, in the midst of I'm getting ready to release a book. You're still in other, you have your hands in other endeavors. Like what do you do now to cope with stress, anxiety and uh, stuff like that? I spent my whole life putting the, the cart before the horse. And I thought like that I had to go wrestle prestige or financial success. Or I always say like, I, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to put the cart before the horse. I wanted to give the horse steroids. Like I just wanted to expedite sort of the natural process of life. So I do my best to prioritize the thing that's most important, which is like sobriety and then my family and my child. And if those things are taken care of, then, you know, when you're not like testing, you know, oxycontin to make sure that they're, um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're real. Wait, did we see that on the pod or did we see that before? No, I think we said it on the pod. 
Okay, I'll quickly, in case anyone forgot, <laughs> you told this great story about, you know, testing some, some Oxycontin. But like, you know, when you're not spending your days running, chasing, you know, the dealer or doing debauchery or all these things, like suddenly like you have some time on your hands to like get the right things done. So for me, it's like, I'm always, you know, six out of seven days of the week, I'm doing something physical. I want that natural endorphin rush. I want to do something where I can just, you know, physiologically get those good chemicals moving. And I'm also vain and I don't ever want to be 300 pounds again. Um, <laughs> and then I do, you know, I don't do a lot of supplementation and whatnot, but I love sauna. I love hot and cold doing cold plunges or ice baths. And then I just try to do something, you know, and, and I'm, I fail at it most days, whether it's just like taking a long walk or reading some sort of like literature that helps me to either better myself or some, some spiritual book. But the real truth is there is nothing as, a, as effective as doing something for someone else and not getting caught doing it. Like if I'm really beset or besieged by some neurotic thoughts, cause God knows even with 14 years sober, like I realize I cannot think my way into right action. I have to act my way into right thinking. So if I do something to get out of myself, the easy solution is something for my wife or kid, but what's even of a higher sort of calling is if I can do something for someone who needs my help or even a stranger, suddenly I'm like, it's like an electric shock where I'm just in an altered, better state. It's really funny that you brought up like the amount of time we spent as people who were heavily addicted to drugs, like in debauchery. Like, you know, you think about it, it's almost like a religion. It's really kind of wild that you spend so much time thinking about, okay, like, who do you have to manipulate to get money today? Like, what are you going to sell? What are you going to buy? What music are you going to listen to? What are you going to eat afterwards? Like, like, what are you guys going to talk? Like all these things that goes into your head just to do drugs. It's insane. It's it's crazy. It's wild. And Josh, you've you've made so much, a lot of work, a lot of hard work at times, right? You've made so many pivots in your life, man. You know, you've between uh, getting into recovery, between working on yourself, between losing the weight. But I think one of the pivots that it's that was really moving for me was when you decided to kind of let go of acting for a little while. And I think there's a lot of people that they get so wrapped up in the identity of a profession or this one thing that it's hard to let go and move forward and make that shift. And they end up staying in it for a lot longer than they need to and their life becomes worse or they end up making that shift out and then constantly looking over their shoulder and being like, what if, what if, what if, and they become miserable because they're so caught up in the past. So what was going, what was going on in your life? What was going through your head? Like, how were you feeling when you decided to let go of this thing that had given you so much success um, at that time of your life? I was at a 12 step meeting Sometime in my mid twenties, and uh, I remember this woman gave this incredible talk. And at one point, first she goes, "You are the love of your life. You are the fish you are trying to catch." And I was like, "Oh God! Like this is this lady's spitting some truth, and now it's just going to plant a seed for a truth forest in my brain. I know it." And she went on to say, "You know, we get sober and we start working on our character defects, and the easy ones are the glaring ones. Like no one wants to be ferociously angry. 
no one wants to be like incredibly slothful. They're like, because the consequence is so immediate and so negative that given the opportunity to face those things, many people will say like, yeah, I, I can see that these issues are causing me a lot of pain. She's like, but what are you willing to let go of that stands between you and happiness? Because it might be something more subtle. Once you get past the glaring stuff, it might be that relationship you think you can't live without, or it might be that job you think defines you. And I remember her saying that and me thinking, God, she's so right. And then a moment went by and the next thought was, oh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. And that's where I was at 32. You know, I had built this great career slightly out of necessity and slightly out of just great timing and some talent and the right sort of the right moment in social media. I was making money from something other than acting and I was still acting, but I had just hit like a lull like I'd never hit before where I went almost three years without, you know, booking a job. And I'd been doing this thing since I was 10 years old. So my entire identity was wrapped up in it. And I was so lucky and I had a wife and kid because I'd stayed sober and I was doing the right things. And I had this other thing that was doing great for me. And I was able to make a living and really like feel confident that I could support a kid and have a life. But I was terribly unhappy and my ego was in a death spiral. Like I talk about like my ego was in the 11th round looking for a knockout. Like it just was like, I can't believe this. I remember people would say to me like, are you still acting? And I would like look at them very pointedly and say, yeah, like I was just a walking open wound. And I just realized that I had to face this. And and in talking to some friends, finally, when again, I was sick and tired with a wife and a kid and a beautiful life. I was sick and tired yet again, because I knew I was like, to your point, and you said it so well, it was like, I don't want this thing that I can't seem to conquer to haunt me for the rest of my life. And I looked to a buddy that I really respect and he said, you know, Josh, your life up until this point has been an anomaly and you can't judge yourself against where you are now to where you were at 15 because no one is that successful at 15. He's like, but what I would tell you is, is that if you're 32 or three and you're telling me that you don't know what the hell to do with your life, it sounds like you're right where you're supposed to be. And so for the first time, when people would ask me, are you still acting? I would say no. And that was okay because I was a human and I was a person who didn't have to be held under or be ruled by by a certain set of restrictions because I'd had so much success. Like I was like many 30 year olds who were who was like, I'm still figuring it out. Like I'm a good dude. And that's what's most important. And the rest I'll figure out. And I also, in saying no, like ended the conversation with whoever was asking me because they were like, ma. So it was in finally being able to face that, that all that power was taken away. And of course, people had said that to me my whole life, when you stop caring is when you'll get, you know, your next big job. And I was like, that sounds great. Put it on a bumper sticker, not sure how to do it. And of course I got this like incredible job a month later because I was no longer acting for anyone but me. I was only doing it because it brought me joy. And it's the same thing I fell in love with when I was eight years old. So it was a superpower to walk into that room, that audition room for the, you know, quite possibly the 900th time in my life with this feeling of like, I'd love to do this, but my life will be the same when I walk out of this room, whether or not I'm the guy. 
And that that's very powerful. You mentioned that you kind of fell back in love with acting, like something that you really enjoyed doing when you were eight years old. So like, what do you think happened over the course of that 20 plus years or so that, that made you really fall out of love with acting? I think I was just so frustrated. And I, again, so much of life to me is, is not addition, it's subtraction. And it's letting go of these defense mechanisms, these shields, these things these that we've acquired that might have worked through part of our life, but eventually sometimes it can sort of cut us off from truly attaining the, the life that we're looking for. So yeah, because it had become synonymous with people pleasing and what you thought of me and all of like those trappings of ego of like, I wanna be considered a working actor because that's rare. And if you are, you're part of this elite club that, by the way, doesn't exist. And so, you know, Robert Greene, who I, I know you're a fan of and you're going to interview, he talks about it in his Daily Laws, where it's like, if you're not sure about what you should be doing in your life, like, go back to when you were a kid and the thing that you loved before finance was an issue or before, you know, winning over the favor of your peers was a thought. Like, what'd you do when no one was watching and you could just do it for fun? And that was acting. So I knew I loved it. It just required me to let go of all this stuff I'd added to it that was weighing me down to re-fall in love with it. Gosh, I love that that saying by him. I mean, it's it's so true, right? You have to fall in love with the thing for the right reasons. And I think one of the things that I'm sure can be really hard in that industry and in life in general is just rejection. Like working so hard for that one thing and being told like, like, yes, 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 there's a shot, there's a shot. Then all of a sudden, when it's all said and done, like, no, you didn't make it. Like, you're not good enough. Like, you didn't qualify for the job or whatever. Like, ha have you learned, I should say, to have a healthier relationship with, with being rejected, whether it's a, a deal that doesn't go through or whether it's like something that, that you wanted now as a, getting back into acting that didn't go the way you wanted to? Like, how has your relationship with, e with rejection evolved? It never gets easier. <laughs> I mean, it's always painful, but when I interviewed Damon John and Gary Vaynerchuk, two like serial entrepreneurs, impressive folks for my podcast, I remember asking them, how long do you mourn a loss? Like when a deal doesn't work out or something you put a lot of time into. And they both sort of took a moment to think and their answers were very similar. And it was like less than an hour. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I'm wounded when like they're out of milk at the store and you're telling me this thing that you gave a lot of time and, and attention to, you can just let go of. And they're like, yeah, because it's like that great phrase of a baseball player who strikes out two out of three times will still make it to the Hall of Fame. And it's a part of life. And it's specifically with acting, what you'll find is, and my acting teacher reminded me of this. She's like, remember, like 90% of the things you're going to audition for, be it you know, CSI or, you know, depending, whatever it is, no hate on CSI, I'd love to do it, great residuals. But my acting teacher was like, remember, like, you're not auditioning for Hamlet, right? Like, there's probably more than one person who can play this role, and it might come down to something out of your control. And that was never more clear than when I booked this show that I did, Turner and Hooch, and I had booked the role first because they had to get the Turner first, and then we were auditioning other people to play my partner or uh, just other parts on the show. And so I would read with some of the other actors to kind of see the chemistry. 
And if there were like nine people that would come in, three of them would not be so great. Three of them would be good. They just weren't right. And three people like all could have done the job, but they each had like a distinct sparkle. And you literally sit there and go like, well, which sparkle do we want? Do we want this flavor or this thing? And all I'm thinking in my head is like, I know they're all going home being like, it was line number 17 that screwed me. If I just given that one line better, and I want to be like, there was nothing you could have done. And I have to be reminded of that because I fall victim to that. I'm like, I said, hello, weird. I shook the casting director's hand badly. I don't want a weak handshake guy in my movie, you know? Yeah, no, you're, you're so right. And I think um, we all fall victim to that, to like thinking like, oh my gosh, like what did I do wrong? Or what could I have done better? Or how could I have handled this differently? Or how could I have like said something in a different way that might've persuaded them in, in, a, in a way that they would have said yes. But the reality is like you said, like, Things happen for a reason. And sometimes that's a hard truth for us to hear. My last question for you revolves around forgiveness, because I think forgiveness is something that we we all struggle with. We all have struggled with. We all will struggle with because it's this thing that's can be very, very daunting, whether it be for ourselves or with others. And you mentioned how you, you, you had empathy for your dad, like when you had your kid, and that really helped bridge the gap between forgiving and not forgiving your father. So let's just say there's somebody who's listening to this that's holding some sort of grudge, whether it's towards themselves, whether it's towards a family member, whether it's towards a friend that they just haven't let go. And it's continuing to, to bring them down time and time again. Like what advice would you have for them? I'm so bad at, at this sometimes. Like I've got, I, you know, I've got a baby resentment I'm, I'm harboring right now. So I don't want it to sound like I've got like the answers because I don't, but From what I know, it's like, and remove the God portion out of it if you're not comfortable with that, but just like, so make it manifesting energy if you're more comfortable with that. But like, I find that A, I really have to start praying for that person to have like the best life ever. Like instead of them hoping they get into a car accident, I have to really want them to have everything they've ever wanted. And, you know, I have to know that I'm fallible and I've needed forgiveness, you know, especially after I got sober, but throughout my life, my wife forgave me this morning. Like I'm fallible. I need forgiveness. And if I'm ever to receive it, then I should probably start by giving it as well. And and also just realizing like how few things in life are truly personal and how you didn't play a part in that person's childhood. You don't even know what happened the day before possibly, or what's weighing on them from that morning. So you know, Ryan Holiday, I think there's like some, I'm going to butcher this stoic quote, but it's just like, if you are offended, you are participating in the offense. You know, there's a choice to be offended. And I tell this story and I'll tell it in a really truncated general way. But I had a friend, a buddy who was a twin and we spent a couple of years together and we were like really good buddies and, he, and him and his twin looked like really very alike. Like it could easily, you could easily, you know, even though they were grownups, you could easily, like they had the same haircut, sort of mix them up. So we have a big falling out, me and the buddy, and for whatever reasons, and I, I'm nursing this massive resentment against him. To see his brother at this gym I would go to, and his brother and I had a nice relationship as well. So cut to, I'm at that gym a few months after me and, and the brother have the falling out, and I, or me and my buddy have a falling out, and I see his brother working out. We just had this really nice general getting to know you. How are you? It's so nice to see you. And then at the end, his brother looks at me and kind of gives me a really sweet look and gives me a hug, walks off. 
And a second goes by and I go, that was my friend. It wasn't his brother. It was my buddy. Like we were just talking in such a general way that it actually, it went by me that it wasn't my friend or it wasn't his brother. It was my friend. And the fact that I wasn't admonishing, I wasn't shitty. I wasn't like cold to him. Like I'm going to punish you for the way you treated me. I just like opened up to him. He so appreciated that. And it was like this weird, totally random once in a lifetime moment where I was like, Oh, like I met him with love and I received love. I know that story might sound crazy, but it really did happen. No, and thank you so much for sharing that. I think you're right. I think anytime, like I experienced this with, with my mom where I was so hurt and resentful towards her for the way that I felt she treated me when I was younger in response to my childhood, in response to my addiction, like all the things that I held onto this grudge. And then she held on to a bunch of resentment towards the way I acted because I was a jerk, you know, in response to the way my life was going. And there was this moment, man, where we were having dinner one night and we had started to make these small steps to amend our relationship. And I let my guard down and I just said I was sorry. And the minute that I let my guard down, like she let her guard down. And she, you know, we started asking each other questions and started talking in a more like vulnerable way. And, you know, she asked me, she said, like, what could I have done differently? And I just said, instead of looking at the fact that I was using drugs, I just wish you would have asked why. And it just created this connection between us that allowed for us to have a more, much more heartfelt and deep conversation about the very thing that we were both resentful towards each other for, which was my younger years. And I think that happens a lot in the, these kinds of situations where we're like that the person truly feels like they want to say sorry and forgive that person, but they're not going to unless the other person does first. And, you know, <laughs> and if it, it's like once you do or once the other person says sorry, it's like, Phew, well, I'm sorry, too. And like, wait, you've been sorry this whole time. You've really forgiven me this whole time. Like, I thought you hated me. And then but what happens after that, man, it's just magic because now like you start to create new pathways in the way you handle things like this, that you see like, wow, like saying sorry and telling somebody you forgave somebody or making an amends actually feels good afterwards. Totally. Oh man, there's no better feeling. You're free. Totally free. Well, dude, I could spend like days talking with you just because there's so many parallels and in, in our personal stories with our own like weight loss journeys and, and recovery and that sort of thing. But I know you're a busy guy. You have this incredible book that's coming out called Happy People Are Annoying, which I highly recommend. I was entertained. I mean, I, I read it in like a couple of days. It was so funny to me. I was highly entertained the entire time. I couldn't put it down, like literally. Thank you and so much. I, I so you got appreciate to, you Yeah, of course. And I know like, and so I know people are going to want to connect with you. They're going to want to learn more about where they can buy the book. So where's the best place for them to do that, man? Anywhere where books are available or you can get a signed copy on Diesel Bookstores and which is a, a little sort of um, small business, small independent bookstore in LA, but they've got a great website, Diesel Bookstores, and you can, you can get a signed copy or, you know, everywhere else. But I, it means so much and, and it comes out March 15th. But thanks, dude. I, I've loved chatting with you. 
Yes, love chatting with you too, Josh. So there you have it. It's Josh Peck. He's got this incredible book called Happy People Are Annoying. And um, he just opened up and got super vulnerable, got super real in this conversation. And I highly recommend, like I always try to do, that you share takeaways. Maybe it was something that, that Josh said about parenting and being a dad. Maybe it was something that he said about his um, his story of overcoming addiction. Maybe it was something that he said about like doing acting for the right reasons or something he said about healing, like whatever it was, tag Josh, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.